All right, back on the conversation. Uh, joining me now is David West, uh, of course, NBA All-Star, NBA champion. Uh, and as we were talking about uh, earlier when he was on the main show, uh, a great team player. And I always respected you for that. Um, and and did all like you're exactly the kind of player that I would love having on my team. Right, uh, right, right, yeah, right. yeah. I think I might have even said so. Anna's husband is a, a, a former professional baseball player, uh, and he plays basketball with us too. Right. And I think I might have called him a David West. Really? Because unselfish <laughs> goes down, gets right. rebounds, puts it back in, right. always doing all the the things that the team needs to win. Right. So I. You could tell I'm a fan. Right, right, right. I appreciate <laughs> that. Super excited to have you here. But so I want to talk about your politics. Yeah. I want to talk about a league that you're now the COO of. Mm-hmm. But I also want to go all the way back and talk about how you grew up and how you got here. Right. Okay. Perfect. So where'd you grow up, David? All right. So I grew up in Teaneck, New Jersey, which is basically a suburb right outside of New York City. You know, I spent most of my weekends the first. 12 or 13 years of my life in Brooklyn, New York. Um, My mom was a a radio announcer, a PA announcer for a big church in Brooklyn. So we would travel basically into Brooklyn about 45 minutes every weekend. Um, So I got, uh, that's where I kind of got my start. Um, You know, when I was nine years old, we experienced on my block um, uh, a police shooting. Um, It was highly publicized and I remember um, it's like it's 89, so I was about to be nine years old, and I remember that was the first time I saw Reverend Al and you know protests and march and things like that came to our neighborhood, um, uh, and it just that was really probably the the first memory I have of sort of something triggering, you know, changing sort of my approach and sort of the way I looked at the world. Started very young. Um, by the time I was a teenager, uh, my grandparents who were Southern had gotten older, so mom and dad wanted to move south. So going from basically New York or New Jersey life into rural uh, southern life was a bit of a, a culture shock. Oh, wow. Uh, where, where was it? Uh, in uh, Garner, North Carolina. Okay. Uh, yeah, my uh, so I had grandparents in Orangeburg, South Carolina, and then uh, grandparents in New Bern, North Carolina. So we kind of found ourselves in the middle of those mm-hmm. two destinations, yeah. So, okay, I'm intensely interested in, in like, uh, not only your basketball career, but right. the political awakening, etc. But let's talk about the culture shock first. Right. Uh, so I grew up in uh, suburban New Jersey too, and I often talk about it. Like I, I had an idyllic childhood, and so it's easier for me because people right. don't know what race I am, and so I kind of <laughs> blended in with everybody. Right. And so I never faced any issues, and I didn't even see any issues. That doesn't mean that, that it didn't exist. Right. But we had, we lived in a nice suburb, and and. To, to the naked eye, at least to people who weren't African American or Latino, etc., we didn't have those. But I'm curious, since you're African American and you grew up in Teaneck first, and then you go to the South, mm-hmm. what was was the difference obvious? Yeah, so uh, you know, in New Jersey, you don't see Confederate flags. You don't you don't feel it. Um, we know racism is something that is exists in the country, right? Um, but like I said, because uh, I grew up in Teaneck, Teaneck was like one of the first integrated school systems and they made a point of making sure that the classrooms were integrated. Even if we lived on different side of the tracks, the kids went to the same schools. Um, and so going into the South, you know, you actually, actually, you go into the out front stuff, right? The Confederate flags on 
cars and hanging from houses and, you know, you, you know who to deal with, who not to deal with. Um, you know, my mother and father were both born in the South. And so they had warned us, they'd given us, uh, what I call my mom, my mom started having little black boy talks, right? The talks that we were necessary for us to figure out how to survive, like where you go, where you don't go. Um, how, how soon we should get home from school. And because, and I remember in 1989, um, uh, when Philip Purnell was shot um, by a police officer right up the street from my house, I remember that's when everything became real, right? Um, all of a sudden, like, the real possibility of you not coming back to this house is real. So mom's leash got a little bit tighter. I, you know, I remember as a child, I would, my, why are you so... You know, they didn't want you to get too far away. Um, but as we got older, you start to realize, right, the danger that our parents can sometimes see that we can't see. Um, you know, as an African-American growing up in this country, you experience and you feel the tensions. When you go into the South, you know, you know, the places that you should be and the places that you shouldn't be, right? Yeah. You, you, and, it, and for me, it was a... Um, it was a shock, not because of the, the, the stark cultural difference, but because I could play basketball, right, all of that was kind of pushed to the side. Mm-hmm. So it was like, hey. Uh, it's okay. It's come okay. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah. you come on. <laughs> <laughs> not, not your friends. But <laughs> you. Right, right. right. Yeah, right. you know, I remember driving in the South. Uh, I used to make the trip from New Jersey to Miami all the time right. uh, because I didn't have money for a plane. So I'd drive back and forth when I lived in Miami. And... Uh, and uh, and I'd stop in places and look, it's beautiful country right. and there's a lot to like and people are uh, polite if if they think you're you know mm-hmm. one of them right. in a sense, right? But I walked into a, a diner. It looked like a, I love diners, and then there was literature about uh, being you know against interracial marriage right. and stuff. And I'm like, I don't. It doesn't compute. Like, how do what do I do with this? Like, right, this right. is crazy. How does it still exist? And like people are like, oh, that's okay. Yeah, in this restaurant, they hate black people. Right. Like, like what? <laughs> right, <laughs> right. 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 And and so I, it's just it's amazing to me. And and I didn't, and I didn't live it personally like you did right. in a sense. So I'm curious, was your mom back then because it was a police shooting warning you to be careful with police or careful with white people in general? Just just in the north, and was it a different warning in the south? So we, it was it was a general sense of your life can, can go. Mm-hmm. Um, literally, two years later, um, uh, my god brother. So in, in black families, we have god brothers and sisters. So mm-hmm. my god brother was murdered in Jacksonville, Florida. Um, he had served at um, well, three years later. So he served in Desert Storm in '91. Came home feeling invincible, um, and he lost his life trying to break up a fight one night. Um, and life, again, these windows, life just becomes real. And for a mother uh, and a father who were raising, um, would raise an imposing black son. I, was, I wasn't always big, but I always had big ex, you know, extremities, big hands and big feet. So feet, people assumed I was always older than I was. Um, you know, the dangers became real. We knew the boy that was killed on my block. Um, so it was immediately the parents were saying that could be my son. So um, that shaped me. And then, you know, just the experiences of traveling south throughout the summers and then finally going to live in the south and becoming 
you know, seeing Confederate flags become normalized in your mind, right, when you're in the South. We're in high mm. school. You know the guys at the school that have Confederate flags in their cars. You just stay away from it. They don't cross you. You don't cross them. That's just the way. Well, see, that's interesting because they always say, no, no, we're not racist. We're just celebrating our heritage. Right. Was that your experience? It, it, no, 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 <laughs> no. The, 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 that, that comes from an ignorant point of view, right, a very surface look at, at what, what that flag represents. Um, but from our experience, right, it was literally, it was normalized. It's normalized now. Um, years, my first couple years in the NBA, we used to play this game. When I would go home, I've lived in New Orleans, I played in New Orleans. But when I would come back home in the summer to North Carolina, um, I would get, uh, I just would get mad seeing the flags hanging everywhere. So I had a buddy of mine at night, we'd go and slam dunk them. So eventually I started collecting these flags because I was going up, running up to people's houses, Two hands, shack attacking those things, pop, snapping them off. Oh wow! Yeah, keeping them in my garage. We were doing that, and then one night I was like, "Dude, we're gonna get shot. One of these racist rednecks gonna open up the, uh-huh. open up their door and fire a shotgun and take us out." But you know, it's, I was young then. Um, but the attitude, right? The, the, what that means for us, um, and what we see in that, um, you know, is a history of, of pain and suffering. Uh, and it's something that, you know, when I remember going into the South originally, um, even as a young kid, it was always a trigger. And then once you live down there, you almost start feeling sorry for the guys who are flying the Confederate flags, right? Yeah. They lost. Yeah, they did. They're actually the biggest losers in American history. <laughs> right. Uh, and, right. Uh, and it's funny, they put up all these uh, participation trophies throughout the South for them. Like, <laughs> and they didn't win the war, right. but hey, we're going to put up the losing generals Absolutely. statute here. Right. Because hey, at least they participated. And remember, they helped kill black people. Right. Uh, so, and, and man, it's disturbing to me, deeply disturbing to me, and I'm not black. Right. So that's why I asked you about yeah. that experience. I kind of love that you slam dunked the Confederate yeah, flags yeah, and ripped yeah. them all down. <laughs> I also like became your mom in that saying, like, no, don't do that. Right, don't right, do right. that. You're gonna get killed. Right, You're gonna get right. killed. I had a, I had a funny. I got a guy come in and he was actually came to fix a. This AAA guy came in to change a battery in my car, and I forgot the flags were in the garage. So oh, he come, he comes okay. in the garage and he's like, he's looking at him. And I'm like, don't. I? And finally, he's like. I gotta ask, bro. What, what's with all the with all the flags? <laughs> was he white or black? <laughs> he was a white dude, but he's uh-huh. like he was uncomfortable. He's like, bro, what what are you doing? I explained <laughs> to him where I, where I had the collection from. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that's funny. No, because like you know, I, I'm staying on this too long. I want to get into no, basketball good. and stuff, yeah. but I, I'm just so curious about it because it's an experience I didn't have, and, I, right. and a lot of people in the audience didn't have, and I want to, in a sense, live through you. Right. Uh, so, like the guys who had the Confederate flags in high school, if it was true that it was just about their heritage. They'd be cool with the black students. Right. They'd be like, "Oh no, no, no! It isn't a racial thing. Let's hang out, right?" right. And did that happen? No, no, no. Again, you—that's when you know—that's what you kind of get accustomed to in the South. That's what's normalized in the South is, you know, those folks. You know, Malcolm X said the most segregated time of day in the U.S. is Sunday morning, right? Because folks go to worship here, folks go to worship here. Nobody worships together, mm-hmm. and that is. You know, that's sort of indicative of what you see when you're in school. Um, you know, when you're like, I remember I was just so, I wasn't naive, but I was trying to say it's not like, you know, you go down there saying it's not like, we're not going to see that. And then it's like, Damn, there it is. You know, there are some stretches you see those flags every house. You yeah. Know? Um, 
Yeah, I remember I was in West Virginia, which is not exactly the South. And but right. a friend of mine lived down there, and he was Jewish, and his next door neighbor had a swastika mm-hmm. uh, on his car. And like, imagine if the they were like, no, no, no it's just German heritage, right? 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 right, right. People <laughs> no. don't do that, right? Yeah, right. and I can't, I couldn't believe that he was still there, and so and. Yeah. It's tough, man. It's yeah, super it, it's tough. A, it, it, again, it's a part of the it's a part of the legacy. Yeah. Um, but again, it's to the point now where if you still think that there's some sort of pride in that symbol, um, then you're the sort of you're what we should question, right? How you think and sort of what 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 you're wired with and how you're wired should be questioned because it makes no sense in this in this day. And yeah. it's particularly the way the country is is shifting. Yeah, it's like. Even if you find it inconvenient, it did stand for slavery, right? And, and it and it most definitely stood for uh, attacking America. Right. It was literally the most un-American flag you could imagine, because right. the the South, the Confederacy, killed more Americans than any other war. Right, absolutely. Right. So when the Confederates uh, rode into battle with their Confederate flag. The flag on the opposite side was the American flag. Right, right. Right. <laughs> right so, right. I mean, they're the least patriotic guys you can imagine right. in that sense. So, anyway, now let's go to, to uh, growing up uh, playing basketball. Right. At what age did you or others begin to think, wait a minute, this guy's got some potential here? Yeah, it, I mean, mom, you know, mom and dad always believed in me, my older brother always, always behind me. But I think it was, wasn't until I actually got like the size. I think for most athletes, right, it's like you've got to actually have the physical pieces there to, to, to get what you want. So it was, I grew late, so I didn't grow until I was a sophomore in high school. So I was kind of a goofy kid with big feet. And then I had like a five and a half, six inch growth spurt over the course of a few months. Uh-huh. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, here we go. So how tall are you now? I'm 6'9". Six 6'9". Nine. Six nine. Yeah. So, but when you were a sophomore, how tall were you? Uh, I was about six. Well, I was right at six feet. So the way I the way I always tell it is, I went into high school. I wasn't six foot yet. Probably between my soft between the end of my freshman year and the start of my sophomore year, I grew about five inches. I went from five eleven to six four and a half. I was one hundred and thirty eight pounds at six mm-hmm. four. I'm amused by this kid that has like really big hands and feet, but the rest right, of the body right, hasn't grown right, in yet. Right, right, right. <laughs> so, right, right and right. if you're five eleven and you're a good player, they're like. Oh, that's nice. He's a good player, right. but it isn't a big deal. Because some of the uh, players that I've talked to, people knew from like day one. Yeah. They're like seven years old. And people are like he's at least got a shot at the NBA. Right. So with you, they didn't know from day one. No, 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 no. It was this was definitely a process um, for me from all the way until it became a reality. I had to work my butt off. I, um, you know, I had some, like I said, some growing. Di- pains and some difficulties. I was super awkward. Like I've, I wear a size 18 now, but my foot was a size 16 when I was 5'11". So uh-huh. I always had big feet. <laughs> yeah, so I yeah. just was awful. Like, right, jeans didn't work out. So, um, you know, I just, I was in a, a rough space just yeah. as a kid at being awkward. And I waited. I was like one of those kids that were literally in my bed, like, like, why? When am I going to grow? Like begging for it, you know what uh-huh. I mean? Because I just wanted everything to go together. But when it did, uh, you know, things just got better, man. Like you start getting confidence in yourself. And, you know, basketball was where I could like open up. Uh, I always tell people that's where I started developing like a, like my intelligence, like being able to like think things through because, you know, everything is not necessarily, it doesn't look 
right right now because you know even at 64 imagine being 64 138 with a size 17 sneaker right you're 138 pounds 138 that's pounds. unbelievable yeah, it was, you it must was, have been the skinniest kid I in was, america with a foot like this <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh -huh. yeah. yeah so uh, that's right, and that's why you gotta then adjust right. and learn how to play the game better right. in order to be able to compete. So do you think that not having that advantage of height from the beginning actually wound up helping you a ton in yeah. in being a better player? Oh Yeah, absolutely, because I, I, I had to learn multiple positions, I had to learn to use my, my head more than my physical attributes because I didn't get them until late. Um, so I just, that's what I did. I tried to just be as smart as I possibly could on the court, learn as many things about the game as I possibly could, um, and just get myself in the position to be, you know, to get the most out of basketball while I had an opportunity to play it. Yeah, so I'm a huge sports fan overall, and okay. I love basketball. And to me, this chess match is more is more interesting than anything else. Like right. in Game of Thrones, yeah, you got the sex, the violence, and stuff. But the intrigue is what's really interesting, right? Right. 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 And you can tell who the smart players are based on positioning on the court, right. right? Right. And I always wondered, like, do they teach everybody, and it just doesn't get through to the other guys? Like, like, how come you knew it better <laughs> than the other guys? Like, where to put yourself on the court right. to play better defense? Where to put yourself to in a position to catch a pass? Right. To do your, I, you know, I jump shot. It, I think it's, I think it's, I think it's just a part of just learning who you are and accepting who you are, right? So a lot of guys refuse to accept the fact that they're not Kobe Bryant, right? They mm -hmm. refuse to accept the fact that they're not LeBron James. But I was somebody that said, it's okay to be you, right? It's okay mm -hmm. to just be me. So mm -hmm. I never looked at that. I remember one time thinking, man, I wish I could jump like that. Mm -hmm. But then it was like, that's not you. You know, mm -hmm. Figure out another way to be effective. So it was always that piece for me. So a lot of guys get caught up in if they don't, if they're not Kobe Bryant, they're aspiring to be Kobe Bryant and not aspiring just to be the best person that they are, or the best player that they are. Right. So if you're trying to be Kobe and you clearly are not Kobe, then how in the world can you listen to information that you're being coached? Because you're literally trying to compute things that aren't, right? Yeah. So first part of it, or maybe the main part of it is self-acceptance, right? You are who you are. Yeah. And there's no deviating from who you are. Just make, maximize what you have, all your skills, all, your ability to work hard, your ability to listen, apply what you learn, just put it into play. I swear to God that watching you play, that you could tell that you thought that. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, I'm serious. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. And that's why I started by saying you're such a great team player and knew exactly who you were, etc. Right. right? All right, but let's talk about the personal side right. just a little bit more, and then I want to okay. get to your league. So when you grew those five, six inches, and now all of a sudden you're a star, right? right? Or at least people begin to perceive you as a star, right? right? Did it change with? Uh, girls? Did it change with friends? Did it change with strangers? Mm. Their interactions with you? Well, so girls came late for me, right? Mm -hmm. um, which I thank God for. Um, uh -huh. But I'm not sure I'd thank God for that. But okay, <laughs> well, yeah. All right, you're a better but, man than yeah. I am. <laughs> but everything, but everything else sort of came as you know, as you get better, as you improve, as people start to take notice of what you're doing. You know, things come, right? The perks come. And you've got to be able to handle those perks. You've got to be able to handle uh, the Fairweather fan. You've got to be able to handle the Johnny Come Latelys. Um, and that extends not just outside your, you know, outside your family. It's inside your family as well. You, know, you want to uh, you know, see that people are genuinely 
with you because they're with you and they're in your support because they genuinely support you and want to make sure that you, you maximize uh, sort of you know, what you're doing. So I always had um, the right people around me. That's another thing. Like I've never allowed myself to get caught up in, um, you know, the people that came lately. Um, yeah. Again, the, 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 my friends who were my childhood friends are literally my friends now. I've, made, I've maintained that. You sound like a Drake song. Uh, start from the bottom, <laughs> right, right. and we don't need no yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> new it's, folks. Yeah, you, don't, you don't really need it. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, a friend of mine uh, was really smart, and he did important research, scientific right. research, but didn't make a lot of money. And right. and there was no respect. There was no nothing. And then he went to Wall Street and made a lot of money. And all of a sudden, everybody was like, "Oh, I knew it all along." Right, right. right I right. knew it all along. Right? <laughs> right, right. So you think the fact that again that you you didn't have it from the beginning, right. it helped you understand who the Johnny Come Latelys were. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And then it keeps you grounded. Um, so, you know, I would like to believe that I'm close to being who I was 10, 15 years ago. Obviously, we always have to grow and evolve and change, but the core of who I am is the same. Yeah. And I think that's you know one of the things I learned early on is you know you want to do things with great impact, right? Follow the things um, that are going to leave your mark in a positive manner. So I'm not one of the guys that are trying to you know, create or generate people knowing my name in every way can turn. That's it's not why I do it for. Right? Yeah. I played because I love to compete, loved being in the moment. Um, it was something that helped me build confidence in myself, right? My ability to sit here and have this conversation with you. I wouldn't have the confidence to do it without basketball, right? Yeah. Without having that one thing to sort of organize my mind around and uh, help me develop, you know, some of the parts of myself that needed to be developed. A hundred percent, which then leads us to the things you did develop. Like, right. so you, now you're the chief operating officer of the Historical Basketball League. Right. So what is that? Right. The Historical Basketball League is a, uh, we aim to be the premier destination for college basketball uh, in the U.S. Right now, um, there's a political uh, context here, um, but I'll mention that a little bit later. But the, 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 the crux of it is we want to compensate, you know, college athletes, guys who we, um, feel are generating a massive market for themselves right now. They're generating salaries for coaches, assistant coaches, trainers, strength trainers. They're generating salaries for TV people, executives, people in front office positions, and they're the only ones not getting paid. And so, from from our perspective, um, you know, it's an it's a, the system is unequitable. System is not fair. I um, mean, it's, it's a highly exploitive system. Uh, and we want to create an environment where there's another option. Right now, everyone has options but the players, right? The coaches can just, they can kind of bounce from job to job. They can sign contracts. They can sign TV deals. They can sign shoe deals, all these different things. And the players literally have to go to school and get an education. Uh, that, for the most of them, you know, if they're in state school and their scholarship, they take care of that scholarship in their first game. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the, the, the process right now, um, is completely disadvantaged. It's, it's a disadvantage for the players, and we want to create an environment where the players centralized, where we can allow them to, to, to participate in the market that they help generate. Yeah, I, I changed my mind on this, but I've changed my mind on a lot of right, things. Right, right. <laughs> and so uh, I used to think, yeah, but you're getting a college education, etc. But then I then I realized, oh, wait a minute, people are making a ton of money from this, right? And uh, and I, you know, you were player of the year in college, but like. In a sense, you're the wrong example because you were so good and you made it into the NBA and then you were an all-star in the NBA, mm -hmm. et cetera. 
But a lot of kids don't make it into the NBA. Right. So Kentucky still made money from them. Duke still made money from them, tons of money, right? But they didn't make it in the NBA or they got hurt right. or whatever. And they never ever get compensated for right, that. Right, exactly. And so like with the HBL, we want to we want to get rid of all of the things. Right now, um, you know, in the news, guys are going to jail for illegal payments to students. But what's happening is we're in the information age. And so parents will have a top 10, top 20 prospect, their kid's a five star. This kid is pulling three, 4,000 people to high school games a night, right? Two, three games a week. Tickets are $15 at the door. Mom and dad, okay, that's fine. And every step of the way, this kid is making money for everybody else, right? By the time this kid's a senior in high school, the game's at the, the it's $20 to get in a game now because mm-hmm. it was eight at his freshman year. He's a big star, McDonald's All American, $20 at the game. They're, they're charging people to park. Mom and dad are still left out in the cold. Mm-hmm. Now is another step. College, right? Same thing's gonna happen, right? Shoe companies, coaches, exploitation, exploitation. Parents are now saying, no more. So recently, you've had three or four high major recruits decide they're not going to go to college. They're going to leave the U.S. and find a better opportunity, I think, in Australia and New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Um, four highly, high, uh, highly visible players, players that should be here, shouldn't have to leave and go five or 6,000 miles away for an opportunity. We want to be that opportunity. We want to fill in that void for them. So how does this work? So are they going to college? Are they not yeah. going to college? And obviously, there's some rules attached right. to the current system. And how are you guys getting around those rules? So what we're doing is we're completely flipped. We're going to separate basketball from athletics. I mean, basketball from academics. Yeah. Um, so we're going to play the games in the summer. Uh, we're going to allow our kids where they're in, in uh, our teams in their cities. Uh, we're going to allow them to enroll in a different type of educational track. So right now, um, college athletes are get put in schools and their, their academic schedules are solely based on their availability for the sport. So chances are what they're getting, what they're learning is not legitimate um, and really not useful. Um, so what we want to do is we want to give them an opportunity to learn things that are useful. We want to use the community colleges and the technical colleges around the U.S. We want to use online universities. We want to use vocational uh, uh, opportunities, right? Um, we want to create an environment where we're handing off real learning to these athletes. So they'll play basketball in the summer. Uh, in the fall and winter, they'll be in physical uh, development uh, instruction, uh, strength and conditioning instruction, and then they will have their academic pursuit where it's completely separate from their game. So they don't have to deal with the pressure of performance, travel, missing missing school to play and perform at a high level. We're going to separate the two. Uh, and they're going to get paid. And they're going to be and they're going to be compensated. They yeah. will. Yeah, they will just, they, right now, the college basketball market is basically where the NBA was in the early 2000s without mm-hmm. the players being compensated. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but can they, does that mean they still, they can't go to UConn uh, because of the rules around? No, the they NBA? would just, they wouldn't be able to play basketball there because so uh-huh. the, the ultimately we're going to have them make a decision at 18, that they want to enter the job force, just like everybody else. Mm -hmm. You graduate high school and you say, I want to go toward my trade. My trade, basketball is a trade. We have to stop looking at sports as just games, right? These are trades. These things can, can, can take you all over the world and they can open up opportunities for you at every single level. And 
we want to introduce those concepts and make that a reality in our league. They will be able to say at 18, I no longer want to be an amateur. I want to be a professional. Come into our league. They can still enroll at UConn or whatever school they want to enroll in. But in the summer, they'll be playing basketball, being compensated. In the fall and winter, they'll be students. And those students, they can be just regular students enrolled on a campus. So last thing, um, right now they can go to college, not get paid, mm-hmm. uh, get some publicity out of it, etc. Mm-hmm. More people see them, let's keep it real, right? Uh, or they can go to Australia, get paid, and then get drafted. Or they can go to Spain anywhere they want, right? And you're basically what you're doing is you're creating a third option, which right. is you can actually have another league here, still be highly visible. And still go to school, right? Absolutely. And right. the you know the, one of the misconceptions that people have is that so right now because of Twitter and Instagram and YouTube, these young players have massive followings before they step foot on college campuses. Yep, they have thousands. Some have a million followers in high school, mm-hmm. and so the people are seeing them right because of the, the mediums are different. They get to see. The players, the players can visibly or, or get themselves into your phone, or your computer, your laptop, your, iPod, your iPad, whatever it is, right away. And that's what's happened. So these kids have followings. They have people who are in their support before they get to the universities. It's just, you know, that year now that some of them are taking, they're saying we don't want to be exploited for that year. We don't yeah. want to give that economic uptick to some university for a year or two while my family Got you. When does the HBL start? It's the summer of 2020. Okay, yep. so coming soon. Yes, sir, coming soon. Okay, right as Trump is leaving office. <laughs> right, absolutely. <laughs> All right, David West, thank yes, you for sir. doing this. Appreciate absolutely. it. Thank you. Okay. All right, guys, we're going to come right back for the post game for the members. Of course, tyt.com slash trial to become a member and get the post game. Thank you.